Hi, I'm Jason Solomons, and this is Seen Any Good Films Lately? The second part of my coverage from the 78th Venice Film Festival, bringing you the star performances to look out for over the coming months of movies. I just thought that's the power of cinema, when you can affect people in a room and move them and make them think and challenge them. Uh, and it's a it's a communal experience. One such star is Ruth Wilson, the British actress who's excellent in Venice title True Things. You know her from The Affair and Luther and his dark materials. And I'll be talking to her about this new role in True Things after I tell you if I've seen any good films lately. Yeah, I've seen some good films lately. Venice was a very strong edition this year. I know it's known for gondolas and vaporetti and spaghetti vongole, but it was London buses that sprang more readily to mind. You know, you wait months for a decent talking point movie to come along and then they all turn up at once. That's certainly what it felt like over a hectic start to Venice, with awards contenders suddenly taking shape and some films that really got everyone talking here, virtually online and on the web and on front pages around the world. So maybe it's easier, if a bit reductive, to talk about the buzzier aspects of the films at Venice, those films and performances that we'll be talking about for a few months more as the awards season begins and the film's journey through New York Film Festival, London Film Festival, uh, and then hit the public screens. So I'm going to start with the actress category, which seems to be uh, leading uh, at the moment. Kristen Stewart springs out for her work in Spencer, playing Diana, Princess of Wales, in Pablo Larraín's three-day Sandringham meltdown movie. for you. They gushed over Spencer in Venice, though I suspect the film itself will exasperate many as it goes on its way. It's really quite a silly bit of work, possibly intentionally so, and Stuart is never less than committed to it and in it, so I reckon it's best viewed as a bit of high camp panto more than anything serious, and that Stuart is turning into the Joan Crawford of our times and that's why she will definitely get awards push for Spencer. Also in the actress category is Olivia Coleman in The Lost Daughter. Olivia Coleman's so good always that sometimes you overlook her. Here she's playing an academic called Leda on a writing holiday in Greece who enters into a fractious relationship with a boisterous local family who share the same beach as her. It's the directing debut of Maggie Gyllenhaal and her rawness as a director does show in the flashback sequences to the young leader played by Jessie Buckley and her struggles as the mother of young children trying to bring them up just when her academic career is blossoming. I found that flashback structure a bit distracting, even unnecessary. I preferred to work out the enigma of this woman's past from the complexities of her actions in the present. You know, I'm just happy to watch Olivia Coleman's amazing face and watch the emotions flicker across that and in her delivery and try and divine what it is that was motivating or what it is that was driving or what it is that was blocking this woman in middle age on the beach in Greece. 
It's adapted from an Eleanor Ferrante novel, uh, in case you want to know. That's the actresses that came to the fore. As for actors, well, there was a lot of Oscar Isaac here at Venice. He was in Dune. He was in Scenes from a Marriage. Uh, and he was in Paul Schrader's The Card Counter, a film in which I found infuriating and fascinating in equal measure. It had as many things I hate in movies, like card games and plot twists and religious imagery. And, and so much of the stuff I love, like money stuffed in holdalls, uh, motels, cocktails. Uh, Oscar Isaac broods through this one, The Card Counter. But if anyone's ever making a Martin Scorsese biopic, let me tell you, Oscar Isaac is your fast-talking, square-faced man. I was really impressed with Tim Roth in a film called Sundown. As far as you can be impressed with a performance that's so self-effacing, he practically rubs himself out. He plays Neil, a wealthy British tourist in Acapulco, who suddenly splits from his family party and embarks on his own journey. He is as detached from the action as the camera that watches him, directed by Michel Franco. Uh, it's a coldly observed film about Mexico's social and economic divides. And Roth is really good in it. It's a really physical, floppy, loose-limbed performance. And he's got this unhurried, depressive trudge, the long face of someone who's smelt something awful. He's so relaxed in his surroundings, though, Tim Roth, and on the screen that he's sort of supine. You know, he almost can't stand up. We've got to guess what's ailing him, got to guess what his condition is, why he's like this. And it's an intriguing, rather chilly, but burning film. The sort of film you come out of with loads of questions, wondering if you'd perhaps fallen asleep or just blinked and missed something crucial. You haven't. It's very short. So Michel Franco directed that one, Sundown, um, and he, you often call him the Michael Haneker of Mexico. And remember, of course, Tim Roth played uh, in Funny Games, the Michael Haneker remake um, for, for Haneker himself. But Michel Franco is also co-producer on another film called La Caja, or The Box, which was um, also another captivating stare at Mexican society, this time from the point of view of a boy who thinks he might have found a father figure to latch onto and then gets involved in this ruthless cycle of um, almost human trafficking. It's the sort of film that I really love, those wide open spaces and sort of peasant children. But I was a touch underwhelmed by this one. Maybe I'll confess that I saw it in London before Venice and I, I didn't sort of see it in the unfolding narrative of a festival i don't like doing it that way because you you miss the excitement of it like entering the competition uh and though venice isn't always about who wins the golden lion this director of uh, la caja lorenzo vigas won the golden lion in venice in 2015 for a film called from afar so remember la caja might not be the last you hear of that one blockbuster wise at venice there was dune uh, i guess i'm not in the mood today Mood? Yeah. What's mood to do with it? You fight when the necessity arises, no matter the mood. Now fight! Come on! I have you. join me in death I see you found the mood it really doesn't get more thumping and serious than Dune it's a real grown up Star Wars if 
that can ever be grown up. Again, as you know, it's not my thing. It's too pompous and full of silly names from different planets and armies and all that stuff. But once you get into the universe and go along for the ride, you sort of go with it. <laughs> it takes a long time to do so. Timothy Chalamet, though, is really good in it. He's sort of a different kind of superhero, the put-upon prince who has to sort of assume power of his planet. So he's like a space hamlet dealing with all this newfound responsibility. I don't know if you get awards for acting in such movies, but he certainly deserves one for keeping his head in Dune. There's something very sincere about the universe of, of Dune. It's a bit too po-faced for me. But I think it'll tot up to a vast amount of technical awards, at least. Uh, in the last week, I mentioned Benedict Cumberbatch playing a cowboy in Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. I think he's going to get a lot of awards pressure. And I think Penelope Cruz in uh, Almodovar's Parallel Mothers are performances to, to watch out for, too. But for me, the really nice surprise of Venice was Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. You witnessed the murder last night, but you believe this was a vision from the past. The guy that killed her is still out there. I have to stop him. It's set in Soho twice, both in the 60s and in the present, and it toggles between the two. Thomas in Mackenzie plays a fashion student at London College of Fashion, and she, she goes into a dingy room at the top of a rickety old house in Googe Place. Uh, and there she sort of feels the spirits of the house that have gone before, run by this mysterious landlady, played by Diana Rigg in her last performance. And somehow this character that Thomasin plays becomes mixed up with the character that lived there before, uh, Anya, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, Sandy, a wannabe singer in the nightclubs of London, the Café de Paris and Rialto. And it's very well done, This the ghosts of Soho past coming up. It's a sort of scary zombie version of um, Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. But it's got great music, some really nice details in it. Great clothes. I think the two leads, Thomas McKenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy, are excellent in it. And, you know, it, it conjured up all that world of the small world of Sammy Lee and John Schlesinger's Darling and uh, Polanski's uh, Repulsion. I mean, almost kind of quotes them. And for all the themes of mental health and feminism and internal demons that the film touches on, it's as a psychogeographical fantasia that it succeeds most for me. A cracked mirror of a film about how alluring and dangerous cities can be, especially somewhere as storied as Soho, where the ghosts kind of jostle with the present. And it does that really, really well. Always something there to remind me. It's the song by Sandy Shaw on the soundtrack. And of course, that's true in Soho. And I think Edgar Wright's film is going to be one of those uh, that stands. I think he's made, he's made a really good London film. So congratulations to him. Uh, you can see Last Night in Soho when it opens in the UK on October the 9th. Before that, it will be a gala at the London Film Festival. Right, well, that's Venice practically sorted, except to mention True Things, a low-budget British film from director Harry Woodliffe, whose debut film Only You starred Josh O'Connor and Lia Costa. And this is a similarly sexy two-hander set in Ramsgate uh, with Tom Burke uh, as a dodgy, cheeky-chappy lover boy and Ruth Wilson as the woman who falls for his charms when she knows she shouldn't but can't resist, and we know she shouldn't, even as it drives her to passionate distraction. I don't know anything about you. I don't know anything about you. My hobbies are reading and listening to music. I like drawing. 
Really? Yeah. Do you have a girlfriend? No, I don't have a girlfriend. Do you do this sort of thing often? Are you interrogating me, Miss Parkin? Have you ever killed anybody? It's <laughs> only in four months. You're funny. Am I? You know you are. Yeah, Ruth Wilson is terrific in this and she's definitely going to figure in awards chat from the Biffers, the British Independent Film Awards, to the BAFTAs, I reckon. She's an actress who always embodies relatable and real figures. People you think you might know or have met, but they're a bit different. They're one step removed. She's got an interesting uh, way of delivering these characters. And when I met her in Venice, I asked her how she worked to create this particular character in True Things and bring her to life. The inspiration started from a novel, you know, that was about eight years ago. Saw that Jude Law gave me that novel once we were doing Anna Christie. And he shared this novel with me and said, I think there's something in it. And I read it and I thought, no, there really is. And this is pre-flea bag. It was pre-sort of very feminine perspectives on uh, messy women, messy modern women. And I just thought, God, there's something really refreshing in this. But working alongside Harry, we wanted to move away from some of the, the books much more violent um, it becomes like a violent, abusive relationship. And what we thought was actually more resonant and more relevant and more universal was just that sort of feeling of the sort of early throes of obsessional love. And I actually thought all of us have been in those relationships where you look back on them four years later and you're like, why on earth was I in that? So it felt like a really universal theme. Yeah. I wondered if you and Harry had, had bonded on that, yeah. not of a particular one, but just got, oh my God, yes, we, we know that. And so the character really formed out of our discussions. I mean, it's five years that we've been working along the, you know, doing this and developing this story and working out what the story is, what we want to say. And it really just came out of me and Harry having conversations about what those relationships are like. What are relationships like? Because it's it, it, any relationship. Well, it, it, she's such a modern woman. I was interested to sort of see what that sort of woman is up to now and how they do na- navigate the, the, the naughty world of relationships. Yeah, well, it's funny, isn't it? Because I suppose we all grow up with these, uh, you know, we're t- we're man- love is romanticised. We're told what we're supposed to have and want and what's idealised love, you know, what a perfect relationship that last forever and it's just kind of incredibly hard to achieve that the move oh, the movies to blame for that Ruth. Well, maybe it is exactly but it's like that sort of thing of what you idealize and as in your, a woman in your 20s and 30s it becomes more and more sort of palpable of what that search for that ultimate love is which is kind of a delusion so i think that's what the film is also debating and discussing is that the you know what you're told to look for is not really reality and so she is romanticizing this individual this man that she meets she thinks he's the answer to all her problems she thinks she'll be able to fit in with the world that she lives in if she has a man in her life and realizes actually that's not what she wants so it is a film of self-actualization of this woman through a relationship it's also very physical because she does get that because she obviously has great sex and she thinks well that's brilliant yes it's a woman who does have a sexual appetite it's she's not repressed woman she has a great creativity and imagination and desire and need um so all those things are very honest and truthful and what exists within women as much as men and she goes out and gets it actually and what what i loved about this wasn't that i was insistent that she can't be a victim it's not like she's a victim of a gaslighting relationship she herself is it takes two to tango so she's choosing to be part of that relationship she's too, choosing to ignore the signals because she's so desperate to I don't know, have connection, have some form of intimacy to 
have what everyone else has. So when you do that, when you create the character, do you do that at the script stage and say, oh, just put this bit in that shows that aspect that you were trying to do? Because you're putting a lot of complexity in there. Or do you wait till you get onto the set doing the performance and say, oh, look, I, this is, this is the, what motivates my character and it will therefore naturally occur in her? No, I think it was all in the development stage because Harrow and I had talked in such detail and depth about those sort of experiences and what... And obviously, as you're starting to write, or she's starting to write a script, then the it starts to take form. You're like, that doesn't quite make sense, or I don't understand why the character's doing that then, or uh, we need a bit more of understanding. There's lots of notes about who she was prior to this moment. We none of us felt very comfortable in kind of digging into her, or even pathologizing her and saying she's a depressive or that she's had something bad happen to her in life. I was like, I don't think so. I think she's just stuck. And she's, maybe she had something that was stifled creativity. Maybe there was a potential of something at, at one point in her life, but that's sort of not happened for her. So I, I thought that maybe she'd gone tried art school, but kind of hadn't really committed to the idea of it. Did you have um, an intimacy coordinator? We did, this yeah. One? yeah. Is that your first uh, one? Uh, uh, yes, I think it is. Yeah, Eater O'Brien, who yeah, is she's, brilliant. She's the one. She's the expert, isn't she? And um, the sexpert, in fact. <laughs> and she uh, was brilliant. And on this, I mean, look, it was such... We wanted to be really honest with the female experience. We wanted one. This is a woman who has desires and passions and is sexual and enjoys sex and wants it and looks for it. But also we wanted it not to uh, objectify her in the same vein. We wanted the image to be really honest on the what we're seeing. We didn't want it to be always just a naked woman walking around the set uh, or walking around the film. So we, we created a really wonderful dynamic with... Uh, it wasn't just in the sex scenes it was kind of on the intimate scenes on her own you know which are also about that how does a person exist on their own and what they like and how comfortable she is with her own body and all those things so it was a really wonderful I I found the most safe I felt the most safe and not just so it does help oh uh, yes and I think it's because it's just about having conversations Mm -hmm. it's about like feeling that you know what your boundaries are you're able to have that conversation each other's boundaries Tom's as well as mine where we're comfortable uh, and it makes it really practical. Talks about things in the most intimate way, but in a really practical way. So you're like, right, this is how we make the audience think this is happening. You know, this technique, or if you put your hand slightly there, it will look more convincing. Or if you, you know, so it's it's actually choreography yeah. more than anything else. Yeah. And something takes away the mystery and the sort of fear around that and the weird dynamic of actors having to sort of fake yeah. sex scenes or intimacy in that way no, because, it looks it was very important yeah. to the film I mean that's exactly. why I asked because exactly. they're always like a dance scene but I just yeah. and, and, and Harry had done it so well in Only You beforehand exactly. you know, she's quite so a sexy th- director obviously yeah so she was sort of like I, I mean I think Harry at first was like I don't know if I need one but I said well I actors might feel more. I might feel com- more comfortable with one to be honest and Tom might too mm. so actually it's just a way of helping actors express themselves actually more than anything else I think and so helping them understand what their own boundaries yeah. are and where they're comfortable what about your actual dance you do a dance at the end oh, yeah. is that you is, is that is that you well, is that her how do you I was going to your dance like somebody else but is that you no, I think I, if I caught you in a disco did you think that would be me going crazy <laughs> in a disco I feel like there's a lot of me in this it's the most I think it's sort of the closest to me in some ways um, because it required sort of observation of a character rather than sort of doing all the time it was like watching a woman in the very intimate moments of her life mm. and so it was almost a series of moments actually so I felt I had to be quite raw and honest and open and just sit and be observed which was quite hard sometimes but also 
really liberating. And the dance was obviously the most liberating part. I was, I always, you see some of those dance, you see dances in movies sometimes and they feel a bit cliched sometimes. And it, I, I was like, don't want this to be cliched. And the way not to make it cliched is to really be wild, like to be completely, honestly free in that moment when you're just high, not, you're not high on life basically and you're feeling the music and you're just letting yourself you're dancing for you and you only it's no one else and it's it can be ugly and beautiful at the same time and it's crazy and but it's completely owned did you choreograph that or did you just let no, it come out no it was like so we'd had one week we, <laughs> it doesn't look like you did no it doesn't does it, you know well there you go um it was uh, we had because we've like you know covid we did a week of filming before covid and then we shut down for sort of five months or whatever we came back and it was the end of our english shoot because we went to spain for a few days and so we even though that was supposed to be in spain we shot it in ramsgate and you know none of us have been out but the spanish bit was in ramsgate no, no, just that, no, just that yeah, club sorry, moment. Yeah. Um, but we were, I think, I just everyone was watching it, wanting to dance because we'd had such a weird six months of this COVID yeah. and not allowed to. In- oh, so there was an element of that involved, that. completely. And sense. first time I'd been in a room with people and we're dancing. I was like, this is amazing. And we played PJ Harvey and we played Paddy Smith, and I just let rip to both of them. Yeah, you really looked like you're enjoying yourself. Yeah. What's your favourite dance number in a film? I don't know. I love the La La Land. That's a really obvious one because that's recent. Well, it's lovely. It is lovely, isn't mm. it? I love that film, actually. Me too. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. That one. There you go. The one on the one. Yeah, exactly. You kind of want it. I thought you might go. I thought you might go cabaret because you've dabbled in that yourself. What with cabaret? Yeah. Have I? Haven't you been in cabaret? No. No. You should be in cabaret. No. Uh, yeah, I should be. I'd love to do cabaret. I would actually. I'd like to play the MC. Anyway. Yeah. You'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know. I've never seen a f- no. gender flip. Exactly. Female MC, MC, please. I know. I don't know why. I, I'm really not. I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Mm. yeah and well, let's do it here. Yeah. 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 yeah okay. So there you go. A little bit. A bit for that. Um, <laughs> if you could go to any set of a film being made anywhere at any time ever and just drop in, like a day, or even for the shoot, which one would you like to kind of creep up on and see what's going on? Any time ever in the world, like back and future. Probably a Stanley Kubrick movie. I'm quite interested in that. Or a David Lynch movie or something. Or, oh my God, I could go on forever now. No, we'll go on there. Or, like, a Schindler's List. Or, you know, an army movie just dropped in the middle. You know what, actually doing... I had an amazing experience on Lone Ranger. We had a shot where all the um, Native Americans were being ambushed by the military. And they staged this thing in the middle of the field. There's like hundreds of horses. and I mean, it was amazing. And I wasn't actually in the scene, but I decided to go and watch it. Yeah. And it was, a, it was incredible. So nice difference think, to the sort of the two-hander intimacy thing yes, that you were exactly, doing. exactly, exactly. So I, uh, yeah, I sort of think anything big and epic that, you're recreating worlds that have been and gone. That's quite fun. I would, you know, drop in on those. What's the best location that you've ever seen on film? Or have you ever shot in? Ever shot in is probably Namibia. was pretty extraordinary. What was that? That was The Prisoner, which, you know, wasn't something that was that uh, <laughs> successful. Um, but the experience of working there was quite... I mean, I just had a great time exploring that country. And I went on safari a number of times, and the sand dunes there, these red dunes, and they're extraordinary. Uh, and then, again, Lone Ranger was amazing because it was four states of America. So it was Arizona, Utah, um, uh, Colorado, and um, New Mexico. Mm. And, I mean, we've got to go to the most amazing places that you can't travel to as a tourist. 
the Canyon de Chez and all these extraordinary spaces and locations, uh, which were epic. And Utah, I mean, those rocks that come through the earth and um, they look like fists coming out of the earth. And we'd travel around with this train that were built for the film. And I was standing on it in this sort of, you know, old garb, old, like layers and layers yeah. of bustle. Um, I just had to pinch myself. I think this is extraordinary. It's like they've made, built a human train set in the middle of a desert and they've taken it around, transported it to Colorado, Utah. All for you. Well, and Johnny Depp, obviously. Well, yeah, it was <laughs> a movie that was cost a lot of money and they've never made one for that money since, so maybe... Well done, Ruth Wilson. Yeah. You seem yeah. to be ruining the all these films. The end of big epic movies. Yeah. And finally, what's your favourite cinema? You know what? I, I mean, I love all the little ones, little, like, you know, intimate ones. One of my favourites was, it was a picture house in Walton-on-Thames. I remember it familiar, it was like where I grew up. Yeah. So I'd go, as a young kid, went and watched some really defining movies in that theatre throughout my childhood. Which oh. ones do you remember? Well, I stationed with this, I'll bring it up again, because I was underage going in, but my dad was like, you have to come and watch this, because it's important. And I remember going into that cinema, you know, it's tiny, and it's probably about 50, 60 people in there or something, and just the energy of everyone coming out was so extraordinary because it affected them. You know, we were all so moved. Mm. And me as a, well, it must have been a 15, and I was probably 13 watching it. And um, I just thought that's the power of cinema, when you can affect people in a room and move them and make them think and challenge them. Uh, and it's a, it's a communal experience. Yeah. And would you say that that's a film that changed your life, then, Chin and List? I suppose I thought, it, no, I'd say it's, it's sort of, taught me about the power of cinema. Is there a film that changed your life? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, there was a time in my life I always put everything on eight. I, I was sort of, I took to my bed at age eight for some mystery illness. I, can't, I don't really know what was going on, but um, I, had a, I had a wonderful cleaner called Frankie who would look after me, and she was an old American actress, Hollywood actress, and she used to smoke endless fags and... And she would prop me up in front of the TV every day with an avocado, and I'd watch loads of old movies. And I'm sure that's where my interest or love for film came. It was like all the Cary Grant movies, yeah. and you know, it was amazing. Would you, like to, would you like to be a sort of black and white screwball actor? You know what? I would. Yeah, I think I've slightly. Mi- I'm born in the wrong time. I would have. I would love to be. Yeah. Catherine Hepburny, yeah. So you delivering withering put down. (laughs) Exactly. Someone write me one. (laughs) So we've got got to make make you the MC in Cabaret and then a sort of fast-talking Hildy Johnson sort of thing. That's what we're casting for you. Right, I've sorted you out. That's perfectly doable. Congratulations on True Things. Thank you for coming on the show. (laughs) Ruth Wilson in Harry Woodliffe's True Things has just been announced as part of the official competition at the upcoming London Film Festival. The film I was talking about with Tim Roth, Sundown, that's also in that competition, as well as Paolo Sorrentino's Hand of God, which I reviewed on last week's show. Okay, so just one more recommend for this week before I go, and it's the reissue of Joseph Lozier's 1963 British thriller The Servant, starring James Fox, Dirk Bogard and Sarah Miles. It's now in a fabulous 4K restoration that is so super sharp and it highlights the lustrous cinematography of Douglas Slocum. And it's about Bogard's sort of middle-class manservant who wheedles his way into the affections and the rivalries of the feckless aristocrat played by James Fox. It's a Harold Pinter script. Uh, It's got power and class and control and those master and servant roles are 
I'm going to thoroughly reverse, but it's also about sex and envy. It's on Blu-ray later this month, a real classic collector's edition of that, but it's also out at the cinema and it's the best thing at the movies again. It's probably been reissued several times since 1963 and it's probably always been film of the week, so it is again for me. And the soundtrack by Johnny Dankworth is what we're going to go out on this week. So, from Venice, where Dirk Bogard's spirit will, of course, always live on in the Hotel de Bain, which I pass every day on the way to the casino and the Palazzo del Cinema. Of course, his ghost of death in Venice still haunts there. Well, here's to another of Dirk Bogard's landmark roles in The Servant. See ya. <laughs> 